You're listening to the Footnotes Podcast, the weekly sermon companion from the teaching team at Real Life. This is a chance to dig a little deeper, chase a few rabbit trails, and touch on some topics that the team may have not been able to fit into their Sunday sermons. We hope this provides a glimpse behind the scenes at the discussion that helps form each week's message. Welcome to Footnotes. I'm Paul Patterson, and today we have Marty Solomon. Greetings. And Kevin. Hey there. Hey, Kevin, what's your last name? Lou. And you are? Marty's intern from New York. One of Marty's interns, and apparently you being from New York is important. Yeah. Because you felt like you should mention that. Yeah, apparently uh, it's, 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 it's just weird. All right, all right. Well, hey, uh, welcome to Footnotes. We have a lot to talk about, um, as is going to be common throughout this series, and not just this series, but also the Revelation series. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna cover large swaths of scripture and passages, and we're not gonna be able to cover everything. Um, and that was evident this week. So we want to encourage you to make sure before the sermons that you're reading up, that you're studying the passages that we're gonna be covering. You can find the sermon plans online uh, at our church website. And so uh, yeah, so this week we, what we want to do is just kind of touch some base, touch base on things that we weren't able to really cover at all. So uh, the first topic is the creation, uh, the second creation story of mankind in chapter two. And I know if I don't know Marty, if you just want to kind of take that and run with it, what we see, and then we can pull it apart a little bit. Like all the questions that come up. As well, we let's uh, maybe just describe it first, and then we could talk questions. Uh, the Genesis two creation story. Yes. Yeah. So God. Well, one of the first things we see is that these two don't like pick up like. The second creation story doesn't pick up where the first one left off, so it raises all these issues. Like, people try to figure out like where it fits in the Genesis one story, and these are like two different narratives written for two different purposes, so mm-hmm. to speak. So we kind of pick up. God creates this garden, and uh, we're told about this garden. It's got lots of trees in it. Then we like kind of pause in our regularly scheduled broadcasting to talk about four rivers. Yeah. For reasons that may or may not be relevant in, per- in future <laughs> sermons, maybe, maybe not. Which you and I yeah. might disagree upon. Perhaps. Yeah. That would be a shocker for me if we disagreed on something. Weird, right? Yeah. Uh, which, for all of our listeners, just default to the fact that I'm usually right in this. <laughs> oh. But we have these four rivers, and then after the four rivers, we have... Um, uh, we get back to the garden story, this garden narrative, and God has placed mankind in the middle of this garden. We're told this garden is full of trees from which they can eat from any tree. We're told that there are two trees in particular that are important, uh, the tree of life, and then there's a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in most of our English translations. And um, Are you suggesting there's another translation? Well, it's not like that's a bad translation, but the rabbis throughout, the sages and rabbis throughout the ages pointed out that that was a problem on some level because it doesn't appear to be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It, oh. Eve seems to know that she's not supposed to eat from this tree before she eats of it, and it doesn't <laughs> seem to be. She seems to possess the knowledge of good and evil, so the rabbis always called it the tree of the knowledge of truth and falsehood. Interesting. But, but later then, God, after they do eat of the tree, God does say they have become like us, knowing good and evil, and the rabbis teach truth and falsehood. Okay. Which they, which they teach is the bigger issue at, at stake there, because good and evil doesn't work in the mm-hmm. story, so they ask the question, well, what was it that changed? Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard one rabbi teach on this where they said, um, 
Like if you if you could take like life's hard decisions, or maybe not hard decisions, but life's decisions, put them into two categories. There's like, do you murder? Do you cheat on your taxes? Are these things wrong? And then in another column, you could put like, do you steal medication if you can't afford it for somebody who's dying? Do you hide Holocaust victims in your attic and lie about it when the Nazis come by? These are much more complicated. And the reason why they're complicated is because a person's goodness, like... Well, and there's two, there's two contradictory statements happening. Like you, sure. Do you choose between lying or protecting life? Exactly. Do you choose between stealing and yes. saving someone's life? Yes. Now the rabbis then go to say... See, the rabbis said, at that point in their reasoning, they say that was the only... The only choices that existed before they ate from the tree were that, that first column. Mm-hmm. Black and white choices. Good and evil. What they didn't understand was truth and falsehood. Because rabbis then point out, if this is true, why do people cheat on their taxes and why do people murder? If those are easy black and white decisions, and the answer to that is because of selfishness, because of self-centeredness. And so they teach that the issue is truth and falsehood because man wasn't ready to be like God and understanding how to deal with the nuances of right and wrong. Because in order to understand what the nuances of right and wrong, you have to understand how to be benevolent and generous to somebody else. Hmm. But if you're going to use the nuances for self, life is going to become very complicated. And as, and as we know, not you and I, of course, Paul, but probably guys like Kevin. Um, from New York. Yeah. From, yeah. It's, a, it's just crazy. As they know, um, <laughs> we have a way of being able to justify just about anything. Mm-hmm. Like even things that are just flat out should be pretty clear we shouldn't do. We have a way of justifying because we have become like God in the, in the respect of we see nuances that maybe we weren't prepared to see. This is how the sages talk about that tree. Well, but yeah, kind of, so, so we have these two trees in the middle of this garden. Right. And, uh, and, and well, no, one no. Of, Are they in the middle? The well, garden? that's the next thing is where the Hebrew literally directly says that the tree of life is in the middle of the garden. And while it reads in the English like both are in the middle of the garden, you really don't have that direct connection to Hebrew. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil may not actually have been in the middle of the garden at all, but the tree of life was. But when Eve talks about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she talks about it being in the middle of the garden. And some of the rabbis say she has made it the middle of her garden. Even though it wasn't in the middle of God's garden, she has made her reality revolve, her and Adam's reality revolve around that tree. So we're jumping the gun a little bit and talking about some of the implications. Um, I, I, did you talk on the actual formation of Adam? No. And so uh, what we read in Genesis 1 is God creates that, creates man and woman. But in Genesis 2, we see a slightly different narrative of the formation of Adam. Um, and we read about God forming mm-hmm. uh, from the dirt uh, a man. And I believe that is not the rock. The word we talked about last week. No, I don't believe so. Um, it's, fa- it's fastened. Uh, it's the same word for for a, a potter. Yes. Something. Yep. Um, and so he creates this ma- this man being out of the dirt, and then he breathes. Um, it's um, the, the word ruach shows up, but it's yes. the spirit of life, or yep, the breath of life, breath of life yep. in, into Adam, um, and he becomes a living thing. Um, 
as we, we see that as well. So here's what I'd like to do a little bit. So if I heard you correctly, it's like uh, Genesis 1 speaks of mankind's glory, while Genesis 2, I mean Adam, the name Adama, Adama's dirt. Mm-hmm. So it's like one story talks about the glory of mankind. Being in his image. And okay. the second story talks about like the frailty, like kind of like this paradox. Like we are nothing but dirt. But at the same time, this tenderness. Yes, absolutely. Like yep. God didn't speak man into existence. He Correct. formed him. Correct. Um, and then he breathes on him. Now, last week in footnotes, we talked a lot about these other creation mythologies. Yep. So it would be shocking this week if, if mythologies have some, something to say about this story. And I believe you're familiar, uh, if not, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the the idea of image of God and the formation of statues when it comes to Egypt. Oh, talk to me more about that. No? Oh. oh. So they would, uh, when they would create, so it, in the Egyptian mythology, it's the image of God are the statues of the divine mm-hmm. beings. Mm-hmm. To what you serve, you offer sacrifices, this is how you make your appeals. This is how you get heard. You have to go to one of these images of God. Correct. Um, now, when so when you make an image of God, this is obviously going to be crucial. And so they would hire. They would often hire someone, and this would be his 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 one task. Uh, and they would create this image, or maybe it'd be a, a group of people. Uh, and when they're done making the image, it's still not considered alive. That's correct. Uh, and they would have some type of ceremony in which they would, you know, we might say consecrate or initiate or they would they would invite the god to dwell on the, the statue uh, and one of the things they would do in Egyptian mythology in the Egyptian culture is they would uh, the spirit of the god would breathe upon it yes and there was different uh, some different ways they would go about doing this including covering the face and um, anointing it and expecting but somehow the spirit of God would enter its nostrils yeah of, of the god that this image now represents. Yeah, and in the Egyptian world, uh, an important distinction that might have relevance for our Genesis narrative uh, would be the Egyptians did not believe, and many cultures in the Bible, did not believe that the god was the statue itself, Mm -hmm. but it was the marker at which the god dwelt. So the god dwelt in or at, or what, but he, the god, he or she dwelt in the statue. The statue was merely the physical representation for where that god dwelt. Which I think if we take that into the Genesis narrative, we even see an implication that's going to become incredibly true in the New Testament yeah. of God dwelling in his people. Which explains why in John 20, Jesus breathes on his disciples exactly. and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Bingo. Um, and I always have a hard time talking. I think you might be, we might have this in common. I have a hard time talking about the Holy Spirit because I don't understand it. I'm, I tend to be more intellectual and analytical and I, I can't grab and hold on to the Holy Spirit. Right. But this type of narrative has, you know, it, it it seems like the Holy Spirit is what makes us human. Correct. Um, and which goes well with our sermon when we resort to animalness, beast beastness. Yes. Uh, is what we end up losing. Correct. That the combination of soil and spirit has been divided. Yes. And um, now it's just soil. Yeah. Yeah. And that word spirit, if we remember, is also breath and wind. Mm-hmm. Spirit, breath, wind. So when we think Holy Spirit, I'm with you. I grew up in the Reformed tradition, so we believed in the Holy Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures, because the Holy Spirit <laughs> made us incredibly. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's great. <laughs> made us incredibly nervous. But um, yeah, so so uh, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, that one of the things I remind myself because I share that tension in my own life 
is when I read Holy Spirit, I remind myself holy breath. It is the breath of God in us that makes us human. Mm-hmm. That is that holy spirit, holy breath. Yeah. And I like what you said about and what we were talking about with the the indwelling, the the God yeah. indwells this the image of God, right? Which we are the image of God, so God dwells indwells within us. Which just that frames um, at, at what I hope happens as we wrestle with Genesis and study it. We we see. Uh, all these imagery, um, and we see all these things that come up in the New Testament, and I, I hope, hope, I hope it helps us. Um, all right, so let's go back to the trees. Um, yeah, so we see these two trees, um, and uh, what? Another thing that I find interesting is the image of trees show up once again throughout multiple cultures, and and cultures that are separated by vast amount of vast amounts of distance and uh, even time. Like the the Nords uh, had a had a, a tree of life, um, and there's there's also a tree of knowledge of good and evil within a lot of uh, I think in the Babylonian mythology it was um, it was a symbol of sex, but that was what they what they had, um, and so once again you see this the symbolism uh, this common symbolism showing up in Genesis. So what do you, what would you say the implications of that are? How how should that help us better understand Genesis three and two? As far as these parallels with other cultural yeah. narratives? Yeah, so what's different about this one? What is Scripture trying to teach us about this? Well, uh, one of the big ones that I love uh, is from the Mesopotamian myth, and that is the snake shows up, and the gods kind of set up mankind. They, they give mankind a similar task, uh, not to engage a certain part of creation, and the god shows up as the snake, because the snake is the image of that Mesopotamian god often. Which, um, which is this uh, one? I'm not sure I could tell you which one, if it's okay. the... Um, I'm trying to remember. And it may even be the Sumerian myth, now that I think about it. I'll have to go back and check. Wikipedia is a wonderful source for these general It questions. might be Inki. Might be. Because Inki and his son were symbolized by the, the serpent. Yeah. yeah. Which, by the way, Inki's son was the one that helped Noah. Yes. Um, in the, in the, yeah. in their narrative. Yeah. So, um, this, this snake in this other cultural narrative shows up to basically show mankind that what they're supposed to do is pursue those desires, mm-hmm. harness the power of those desires. It's in the desire that they're going to find everything that they need. So the snake character is the God character. When you know that, and you go back and read Genesis 2 and 3, uh, you realize that the original reader, like the first time they heard this story may have even assumed when the snake enters the story that the snake is God. Mm-hmm. And you realize there's no indication in the story. Like it's not until much, much later in our Bibles, uh, New Testament, in fact, uh, before you get <laughs> the identification that the snake is Satan. Mm-hmm. Uh, to them, this is a cultural narrative that they're used to, but God is in fact coming and saying, the narrative you're used to is actually a lie. Mm-hmm. So by the time this biblical story is over, the story they're used to has been identified as a sham. Mm-hmm. And God says, if you buy into that narrative, you're going to find not rest, not what we talked about in Genesis 1. Yeah. And we'll come back to the snake, going back to the trees. Oftentimes the trees are, um, they show up in different stories, but often it's, you know, mankind is, is attempting to live forever. Yes. They're trying to the tree of life. And sometimes it's a, they're trying to ascend to godhood or yes. maybe be free from the gods. Yes. Um, it was, 
and and they ne- they're needing to go somewhere. Yeah, like they're needing to get something rather than this story that starts in the opposite. Yeah, it's it's already given to it's, you. You already have it. Yeah, just the, trust it. And then in the epic of Gilgamesh, he the tree of life I believe is like in the bottom of a pond or a lake. Gilgamesh swims down to it. He gets the fruit. He comes back up. He's sitting on a log, catching his breath. Uh, and the fruit of life is sitting yes. on it, and a snake comes up from behind and eats it. Yes. And so uh, you just you see all these parallelisms about yeah. you know once again mankind has to go to get life, but it's robbed from him. But in this story, it's always available. Um, but it was it's us re- uh, reverting back to right. us being animals yeah. that prevents us from having it. And the union between male and female in this story is unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because either in these ancient tales, it's usually all focused on a male character, mm-hmm. or in a goddess-worshipping culture, it's all focused on the female character. Mm-hmm. But very rarely do you see the union between male and female working together in the narrative. And they're often made from different things. Absolutely. And so this is this is unique, because it's not Eve being made from different dirt or from some other thing. It's She is made from Adam, which is why Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Correct. They are um, uh, the same. Right. Um, and we it's a wonderful question because we just miss all this stuff when we just start with our typical English reading. Yep. We don't realize all the revolutionary things that these creation narratives were telling the people. Yeah. Um, what? So, in just jumping back to the New Testament, you know, we, when we get to Revelation 21 22, I find it fascinating that we find the tree of life there. Yes, we do. But we don't find the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We do not. So, what does that mean? I think if I lean into that rabbinical teaching, I think it teaches we've now learned how to appropriately use the knowledge of truth and falsehood. Yeah. Or, or you could even go back to the other trend, our our translation of good and evil. Sure. Like we've, sure. We've yeah. mastered it. We've... Right. And until that point, Revelation twenty one and twenty two can't happen. Mm-hmm. Until we've learned what to do with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or the tree of truth and falsehood. Until we've learned that, we can't see that fulfillment of all those things. Which, you know, we could easily go off into the word for tree that John uses. Ugh, dendron. Yeah. Ugh. Well, no, he doesn't use dendron. Zulon. Zulon, yeah. He doesn't use the word Stop for tree. It. Stop, Stop it. Stop it, Paul. Sorry, sorry. We'll do talked. Revelation later. We, we, could, about, we, could, uh, we could totally spoiler alert that. So, going back to snake, um, when we wrestle with snake imagery in these ancient mythologies and cultures, uh, snakes kind of, they either fall into one of two camps. They're either the symbol of wisdom and life. Uh, uh, they're the source of knowledge and eternal life, oftentimes. Uh, and it doesn't matter, once again, what culture. It could be Egyptian. It could be Nordic. It could be the Greco-Roman. Right, right. Like they're always, they tend to, and, you know, we talked about Asclepius. Yep. Um, is it Hermes that has the, the double helix? Yes, I believe so. Um, which uh, Inki also had a yep. single staff with a single serpent. You showed me that, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but... Also, snakes also, on the other side, have this symbol of chaos and death. Uh, for example, I just forget, uh, Apep, I believe, is the Egyptian god, um, the snake of the underworld into which Ra sets every day that we talked about last week. Yep. And they actually had religious ceremonies. Like, you would, you know, normally you'd think you'd go to a temple to worship a god. You could actually go to a temple to spit and to crush the head of Apep. Ah. Um, Ooh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, like, anyway, uh, so there's the snake kind of has this this dualistic uh-huh. uh, imagery in their uh-huh. culture, and I find it telling that in Genesis three, it's both. 
Right. Like it's the mingling of yeah. wisdom and life, but at the same time, death and chaos. Right. Oh yeah. And so when, when a snake shows up, you can see the audience going, which one is this? Right. Right. And it's almost both. Yeah. And you don't really, until the end of the story, you really can't even figure it out. You're like, mm-hmm. you don't know. It's this cliffhanger. Which, and, but then we also, I mean, ultimately we learn first and foremost that, uh, a pep, the snake, um, is not, we don't need to be in fear of it. Correct. Uh, it's, it submits to God. Even in the reality of the fall that we live in mm-hmm. and the brokenness and the curse and all of that, we are like told very clearly that you will learn how to crush this snake. Yeah. And we're not directly in Jesus. Absolutely not taking anything away with that. Away from but that. Romans 16. Romans 16. Oh, God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Mm-hmm. Like we are going in the, in the midst of our own brokenness and living under the curse. We are going to figure out how to master this mm-hmm. thing. Uh, in the power of Jesus. Yeah. We're going to figure out how to master this thing. The, uh, and we also learn that the snake is not the source of life. Correct. Um, and in fact, it's, it's the opposite. Uh, and so this dualistic nature, this tension that they would have, uh, that many people in this culture would have grown up with as far as the imagery of the snake, we find completely resolved. Uh, the snake is not the source of chaos in life. It, God is the source of life and you don't need to worry about the chaos. Um, so there's that. Now we enter the, the the thing that we had to we had to skip over for the sake of time is the discussion of the curse um, or curses uh, in Genesis three, and we often we often uh, if you've grown up in church actually not 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 even if you've grown up in church if you've been out of the church you understand you you've already been exposed to this idea that Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed them. Uh, however, I think. Uh, if you were to get rid of your preconceived notions and what you've been brought up and what we often read into this, I think we find a a better story than that. Um, so, uh, you know, when we read the curses, there is no... God actually doesn't curse them. Right. Um, there is no direct curse of them. God is making a proclamation instead because you have done this. He says... Uh, Sorry, I'm having heartburn. Um, and, my, and my brain shut down at the same time, too. But there, yeah, God does not curse them. This is the result of, of their actions. This is going to be the final outcome. And if we, re- which makes sense because if we recall, when God told them not to eat of the, tr- the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, he says, on that day you, you shall surely die. And what is apparent in Genesis 3 is that they do not die, which sets up Genesis 4 well. God is letting them know because they have not trusted the story, because they have not controlled their desires, because of all this, this is going to be the outworking of it. Um, yeah, any more you want to add to that or talk about that? Oh, not necessarily, but there's all kinds of good stuff in there, though. I find uh, Eve's quote-unquote curse uh, intriguing. It's only, it's only one verse in our translations. Uh, it is the smallest of all three of them. Uh, and first off, it's that God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, which seems like God is cursing her. Like, I'm I'm doing this to you. Um, we were talking earlier, though, that this idea of pain and childbearing isn't quite accurate. It's not that she will have pain in childbirth. It's actually that the word pain is the same word for toil that Adam has. Yes. Um, and it's not 
directly tied to childbirth. In fact, child and the word childbearing, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's not it's not um, explicitly the the act of bearing a child. It's actually the, the idea of raising a child. Yeah, it's literally child rearing. Yeah. Yep. And so she will have toil in child rearing. Right. Yeah, this process of raising a child is going to push back in the same way that the process of working the soil. The earth is going to push back against Adam because they've brought this like disruption of shalom relationship in the same way this is going to be a disruption in her and Adam, but the mm-hmm. disruption of their ability to raise children. Yeah. Um, which we see immediately in Genesis 4. Exactly. Uh, we see you know Eve bears a child, Cain... She says, you know, God's giving me a child. Unfortunately, as we know, Cain kills Abel. And then at the end of Genesis 4, uh, it says she bears she bears another child named Seth this time. And like we see the heartbreak of parents here. And, um, yeah. On, uh, on a deeper level, though, her, her quote-unquote curse is uh, fascinating because the language shows up again in the next chapter. Yes, in two ways, in the word for desire, and as we were looking at before this, in the way the prepositions work with ruling. Mm-hmm. So uh, go ahead and talk more about that. So, well, it's hard to know which one to do first. So we, we've, let's, we, let's, let's go to Cain and Abel and then come back. So in let's Cain, talk to Shuka. Let's do this. Let's talk Shuka, to Shuka. Okay. Right, well, I'm, then, making, then I'm making an executive Shuka. decision here. All right. So the rabbis teach that there are... You are always right. Well, exactly. <laughs> I hope everybody took that note down earlier. It just serves you so well later on in your life. Um, so the rabbi sees that there are like four teshukas in the in the that we see in the scriptures. What is what is uh, teshuka is the word desire. Okay. So when the curse tells Eve that her desire will be for her husband, the word that's used there is not the typical word that you would use in the Hebrew for desire. Um, the word there is teshuka, and the rabbis have pointed out it's a very um, it's a very unique uh, teshuka, a very unique desire. Teshuka, they say, um, the rain has teshuka for the earth. God has teshuka for his people. Eve had teshuka for her husband. And Cain's desire, sinful desire, in the text, had teshuka for him. And so the rabbi said, well, what kind of desire is this? Because that seems backwards. Like, it's not the earth that has, or it's not it's not the rain that has teshuka. The earth desires the rain, right? Like mm-hmm. the earth has this desire, but the rabbis say not teshuka. And when it comes to teshuka, the rain teshukas the earth. And, and then the next one, God has teshuka for his people. Well, that shouldn't be right. Like it should be us that desire God. Like God doesn't desire us. Mm-hmm. And the rabbis say, well, when it comes to teshuka, he does. Teshuka, they said, is... Like, God made rain to bless the earth. Like, that's why, like, rain has rain has to fall on the earth. That's why it exists. God has to love his people because it's who he is. That's the, the desire. Teshuka is the kind of desire hmm. where, where you pour out of yourself because it's, it's, it is fundamentally who you are. Which then means uh, that Eve... It's not that her desire will be like, like she just yearns for her husband. It's that she has this desire to visit abundance onto her mate. Like she so, is. So with that, talk about the word for helper. 
Right. So, yeah. That's a, and you have to have that or else you get the totally wrong thing. Like somebody will hear me say, like, are you saying women exist just to please their husband? No, not at all. So the woman is made, and she's called the etzer konegdo. Uh, etzer being that word for help, and konegdo being the word for opposes. So she is the help that opposes. Um, we say helpmate, which totally messes. Like, we do totally the wrong thing with that. The idea here is that she has been made to help Adam, but she helps Adam by opposing Adam. She is Adam's opposing like force. An like an A-frame, and that's how the rabbis explain it. Like oh. two planks leaning against one another. If you take any plank away, the other plank falls. You have to have the opposition of the other plank in order to be supported. You take away that... So it is like... It is the... It is a spouse's fundamental identity to oppose their mate in a way that supports them. Um, we don't have time, but this is a great C.S. Lewis quote about uh, his wife and how what he finds valuable of her is the fact that she's fundamentally different than he is. Right. And that's what's valuable. Right. So, Which is the teshuka that she has. Yeah. She ha- she's, she's made to oppose her husband, to give her husband lacks all kinds of things that God took out of him and put in her. Which is important because we we read in Genesis 1 that both male and female were created in his image. Correct. Um, Only together which, do you have the Which, once again, image. in this culture is... Uh, this this is heresy in their culture. Sure. Like, Absolutely. No, that men were created to serve gods and the female were created to produce either more men or to serve right. men. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And this is... This is so... Yeah. Which means, and I, I've had this discussion with students, and like it blows their brain, uh, but they've never thought it, just because they've never thought it through, it means that there is a part of God that is woman. Sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we're, we're uncomfortable with that. But God uses analogies throughout Scripture. In fact, the word helper, uh, the, the word that we translate helper, is only ever used again of God. Correct. Uh, in his relationship with Israel. Yep. Uh, and he uses other feminine metaphors, like the idea of child childbirth. Yep. Uh, the idea of a mother, or like Jesus yep. when he talks about, uh, oh Israel, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers yep. chicks. Uh, there, there is a caring. Uh, there's anyway. So, I'm uh, getting off into the weeds a little bit here. Uh, but so going back, so going back to Suzuka. Uh, wow, totally butchered that word. That's all right. Uh, thank you. I'm I'm not Hebrew, so it's all right. I'm just a dirty gentile. Yeah, that's all right. So going but back to the idea to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to this idea of desire and partner, one who opposes. Yes. Then um, now put this back into. Let's start working towards Cain now. Right. So. So the well, fourth, so the fourth teshuka. Oh, so the third teshuka was that. So the so the whole point of the rabbinical teaching is actually Cain, like Cain, when we're told about God comes to Cain in that story and he told him, if you remember from our sermon, uh, sin is crouched at the door. It's desire. Well, guess what word is used there? It's teshuka. So the rabbis are like, what, what in the world? Like, why is teshuka used of Cain's, like the sin is crouching at the door, and it has a teshuka for you. Um, and they said uh, that this teshuka means that we have, God gave us desires. Desires are not the problem. Sin won't arise because we have desire. Uh, it's not like, this is part of the fundamental difference between like um, like a Buddhist conversation yeah. and proper biblical conversation. There's so many similarities, but there are some very, very key significant differences. That would be one of them. Desire is not the issue. 
Uh, desire is a part of what God put in you to survive and to thrive. It's knowing how to master what makes you human as you master your desire rather than letting your desire master you. Uh, and this is reinforced by what we found in the conversation in Eve's curse to rule and how it shows up in Cain. So, and somebody set up the Cain thing and then we'll go back to the word yes. rule. Uh, we often, when we read in a lot of church circles, when we read the, the curse of Eve, uh, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. We often read that as a, um, well, we know how we read it. What's intriguing, though, is that this almost verbatim shows up with Cain. Correct. Uh, this exact language, when God says, not when God, yeah, when God says, uh, sin is crushing on the door and its desire is to rule over, is to have you, uh, but you must rule over it. Which right. shows that the curse of Eve is not a female thing. It's right. A, it's a, this is a brother against brother thing. Yes. So it's it's more than that. Right. Um, but you know, and everything, uh, I mean, everything else is, I was, I was, I brought up the idea of even clothing. Uh, we see clothing being used throughout the New Testament as an image of righteousness. Uh, and it's something that God does for us. Right. Um, and so you, you see that, I mean, it shows up in Revelation, um, the idea of the Holy Spirit and the breath and uh, God indwelling in us. There's just a lot of uh, implications uh, of Genesis 2, 3, and 4 that we find throughout the New Testament. You can't understand the New Testament and what it's doing without really deeply understanding this. Yeah, especially yeah. Genesis. Yeah. yeah. Do, you have, do you have any other thoughts on that? Not necessarily. I mean, I have a lot, but... Yeah. Whew. Well, I'm not sure how long we've been going, but uh, we probably should wrap it up. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thank you guys for joining us. Hope it was good. Hope that you learned something, uh, maybe even being challenged a little bit. Until next week, uh, God bless. See you guys. By the way, Kevin was taking a nap most of the time. Much more fitted. All right, see you guys later. Thanks for listening to this week's footnotes, and please keep the discussion going. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can connect with us by emailing comment at liferotp.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter at liferotp. You can find the individual members of the teaching team on Twitter as well, or just visit us on a Sunday morning and connect face-to-face. We hope you'll join us again next week, and until then, God bless.